So I have two questions for you as we begin. How are we to respond as Christians to chaotic and hard situations? And then the second question is, and who really is over all these situations? So if you would turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 37, it paints a picture of these answers to these two questions. So again, that's Jeremiah chapter 27. Oh, sorry, Jeremiah 37. Did I say 27? Jeremiah 37, sorry about that. Jeremiah 37. And we're going to begin by reading verse 1. So Jeremiah 37, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter tonight. Verse 1 says, Zedekiah the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim. So we're given some context here as we begin our story. Zedekiah, who is the son of Josiah, is king. So uh, if you see in verse 1, we have a question here. Who made him king? It says that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made him king. What is up with this? How did the king of Babylon make someone king in Judah? They're two separate nations, two separate countries here. We also see something odd with this context in verse 1. It says that Zedekiah reigned instead of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. What's so odd about this? If you know anything about the kings of Judah in most kingships back in this time, the kingship was passed on to the next oldest son. So uh, we have here Zedekiah. It says that he's the king of Josiah, the past king He was also a king of Josiah. His name was Jehoiakim. So the the thing that's odd here is that Zedekiah is the brother of Jehoiakim, the past king. So Jehoiakim's son did not become king. And if we look at the chapter before our our passage today, Jeremiah 37, if we look at Jeremiah 36, it gives us the reason why all these things have taken place, that the king of Babylon has made someone the king, and also why the brother of the past king is reigning. So to give you a little of context of Jeremiah 36, we have in here that King Jehoiakim is the king, and the prophet Jeremiah and his servant Baruch are on the scene. God tells them to make a scroll of all the words that he had told to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah has Baruch, he writes down this, all of God's word, and then the scroll is finally passed on to King Jehoiakim. And he destroys it. He rejects it. And he throws it into fire. And in Jeremiah 36, if you would look there for us, for me, uh, in verses 29 through 31, it records his punishment from God. So Jeremiah 36, 29 through 31 says, And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their inequity. 
I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them. But they would not hear. So this prophecy is what will happen. This is given uh, something that will happen to Jehoiakim, his punishment. But if we look at other scriptures, it tells us uh, what actually did happen. So up on the screen, I have Daniel chapter 1, uh, 1 through 2. I'm going to be switching around to several passages tonight, so I'm making use of the PowerPoint. So you certainly can turn to the passages, or you can just look up at the screen. So Daniel chapter 1 tells us actually what plays out. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And another passage that shows what actually did happen is Jeremiah 27, 6 through 7. It says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and the eye is God. The king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. So here we have it. We've seen that Babylon has taken over Judah. The land and the kingdom has been taken over by Babylon and they are in control. But who's even more so in control? As we see, God says, to quote uh, this verse up on the screen, it says, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. So even though it certainly does seem like King Nebuchadnezzar is in control, he's in charge of the situation, God is even more so in charge. God was truly in control, and he was allowing this and causing this to happen. So we get our first point from tonight, our first point that can apply to us. I believe that Jeremiah recorded in verse 1 to tell us this context for a specific reason, to show us that God is truly in control. The situation may have looked like the king of Babylon was in control, but God was behind it all. So our point number one from verse one is the same goes for our lives. Even though it looks like many people are in control and causing things to happen, God is behind it all. So think of rulers in our world today, dictators, governments. They make decisions and have much power, but our God is in control allowing and causing these things to happen. He directs and guides them to do his will. So here's some several applications of this for our lives. Think of an example that we all can relate to, our government. We will soon be electing a president. They certainly have power and can change things, but even above above them is God. He is in control over all things even when it might seem like the president is making decisions or causing this or that to happen, God is ultimately the one allowing it. Another example, maybe more personally, think of your job, your boss. This boss may not be the best boss, to say the least. They constantly have you do way too much work. They do not treat you with kindness, and they even put you down sometimes. They humiliate you among your coworkers and cause you to have an awful day on a regular basis. It sure does seem 
like they're in control of the situation. But truly God is. Even though he, we can't see him, he's truly working. Another example for maybe the kids or some college students. Think of a teacher at school that you may have. They have great authority over you. They may falsely accuse you of things you may not do. They may treat the class in an unrespectful manner, in an un- understanding manner. But God is ultimately the one in control. He allows and causes these things to happen. So as we move on in the context, if you look at verse 2 with me, it says, But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. So when it says he, it's talking about King Zedekiah still. So King Zedekiah who had been made king by Nebuchadnezzar, did not listen to the word of the Lord. Nor did his servants, nor the people of the land. So we have King Zedekiah as another wicked king. He didn't follow the example of his brother, who was punished for the wicked things he had done. But if you look back with me at verse 2, it says, that it says, But neither he nor his servants, nor the people of the land, listen to the words of the Lord. What was this word of the Lord that he disobeyed? In specific, uh, this is what Jeremiah spoke to Zedekiah from God's word. Specifically, it was that they were to surrender to the king of Babylon and not fight against him. And this is very important for us to see today in our passage. This gives us great context. So if you look with me up on the screen, I have several passages uh, that tell us this word that King Zedekiah disobeyed uh, God. So first one is Jeremiah 21, 8 through 10. It says, And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in the city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. So this was Jeremiah's first warning. The second one is found in Jeremiah 27, 8 through 11. There we go. Uh, This one says, But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon. I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from the land, And I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. So this was the second warning that Jeremiah gave, that the king Zedekiah was to surrender to Babylon. And the third and last one that we're going to look at is Jeremiah 27, 12 through 15. It says, To Zedekiah king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, 
by famine, by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name, with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. So we've, we've looked at three passages. They were, they were quite lengthy. So to summarize or to simplify it, here we have it, Zedekiah is warned. He's warned several times that he was to surrender to the king of Babylon. That's his way out. That's his relief to surrender to Babylon. That's what God's commanded him to do. So let's see how King Zedekiah responds. And that's where we come back to our story in chapter, in chapter 37 of Jeremiah. So... If you look with me in verse 3, it says, King Zedekiah sent Jehukau, and the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. So here we have it, Zedekiah seeking prayer from God. He goes to Jeremiah and he sends his men, Jehukau and Zephaniah, to get Jeremiah to pray for Judah. We find out in verse 4 as to why they can do this, and that's because Jeremiah has not been put in prison yet, it says. So it's interesting, as we look at verse 3, we may say, it seems as if Zedekiah is a godly king. We were just told in verse 2 that he's a wicked king, but now he's looking for prayer. It certainly does seem as if he's a godly king. But we need to take two things into account. The first is, why is he praying? In verse 5, we kind of get the context of it. If you look uh, more at the second half of verse 5, it says, And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem. So we saw in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar was kind of running Judah. He was in charge. Here we have it that uh, Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And what this means is that Babylon has Jerusalem surrounded. They are seeking to isolate them from resources and help, and help and hope that they would surrender. Imagine the kingdom of Judah, surrounded by a wall for protection, but all the exits are blocked off by the king of Babylon and his army. Eventually, they'll run out of food, and they'll run out of resources to survive, and they would have to surrender. So they are surrounded by the Babylonians in a helpless situation. So Zedekiah is seeking prayer from God for help and from relief. So that's the first thing to take into account. And the second thing is, remember these passages we've just looked at. God's given them the way of relief. He's given them the way out, which was to surrender to the Babylonians. So we see that Zedekiah actually looking for prayer. He's looking for another way, another way for God to give them relief. So he's disobeying what God has told them to do to surrender. If we look at the full context of verse 5, if you look there with me, it says... The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. So here we have Egypt comes to help. So Babylon has the city of Judah surrounded. They're surrounded, and so they ask Egypt to come and help. So the army of Pharaoh comes to relieve Judah. Why? Well, let's look at a little bit more context, and this is found in Ezekiel Chapter 21. If you follow along as I read, this gives us why Egypt comes to help. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. 
Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the, of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep, it, keep his covenant that he might, it might stand. But he rebelled, that's King Zedekiah, but he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? So here we have it. This explains in verse 15 that King Zedekiah, he sent ambassadors to Egypt that they might bring their horses and their chariots and their army to come help Judah. So he looks for aid and help. This is why Egypt comes to help Judah. So let's backtrack. Let's look at our passage uh, verse, at verse 5. We see that Babylon is surrounding the city of Judah. Judah is in a desperate situation. What do they do? They look to Egypt for help. The king sends men to go and ask for help. Pharaoh gathers up his army. He gathers up the horses and his chariots. And he makes the 433-mile journey to help. In the meantime, the Babylonians, as we can see at the end of verse 5, they get wind of this and they withdraw out of Judah from besieging Judah. So King Zedekiah is not listening to God's word. He's taking matters into his own hands, turning to Egypt for relief. It would be normal to seek relief. If you think of their situation, certainly you would want to find a way out. Common sense. But Zedekiah has already been given a way out, as we've already seen that he is to surrender to the Babylonians. That's what God has told him to do, but he is directly disobeying God. So what an interesting and seemingly chaotic situation we have here. Judah's in distress. They are seeking help from another country, and the Babylonians look like they're finished. At this time, God's word comes to Jeremiah. In verses 6 through 8, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me, to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city. They shall capture it and burn it with fire. So God tells Jeremiah in verses 6 through 8 that simply Pharaoh's army, it's going to leave. In that the Chaldeans, who are also the Babylonians, it's another name for them, they'll return and destroy the city. So Zedekiah's plan has failed. He's tried to find another way out by asking Egypt to come. His plan has failed. What God had originally told them to surrender to the Babylonians, he would seek to get out of that situation. God shows that what he says will happen. As we look at verses 9 through 10, it says, Thus says the Lord, Do not deceive yourselves, saying, The Chaldeans will surely go away from us, for they will not go away. For even if you should defeat the whole army of Chaldeans who are fighting against you, there remained of them only wounded men. Every man in his tent, they would rise up and burn the city with fire. So God's trying to get the point of cross to King Zedekiah, that he is in control. No matter how you try, and get rid of my plan, nor however it looks, 
I am in control. God proves he is in control by his knowing what will happen in the future, as we can see from verses 6 through 10. So we get our next point. Point number two. God is in control in the midst of chaos and disaster. And we see how we are to respond as we look at Zedekiah's response. We're, to, we're supposed to respond the complete opposite way as he did. He chose to try and seek to not do what God has commanded. He sought to disobey and get out of the disaster his way. We must, we must remember in times of chaos in our lives that God is in control. We are to continue to follow his commands for us, to follow no matter how tough life is. We all, and we also see from these verses that no matter how life's going, no matter how it looks, we're to remember that God is in control. So some application, some specific examples. Reflecting on your own life, many of us have gone through some tough times. Certainly, you may not have been in a city surrounded by an army and had to seek relief, but we have gone through some very chaotic and tough times in our own lives. For example, maybe in your family life, a big argument or disagreement is looming. You don't know how to handle it, and it could tear apart the family. We are to continue to obey God's commands, remembering He is in control. No matter how things are working out, we are to see He is over the situation. Another example, nothing's working out in your life. You're trying to find a job and you just can't find one. Your friends aren't as supportive as they once were, and your family, they they live far away. So your financial support is in distress. You must remember that God is still in control. No matter how far gone the situation may seem, he is there. And as a last example, maybe relationships in your life are at odds or falling apart. Maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a coworker or a fellow believer you're at odds with. A falling out has happened and it seems disastrous. Remember, God's in control. We are to remember this no matter what is going on or how broken the relationship seems. So we'll continue on in our passage. In verses 11 through 13, we see that Jeremiah received this word. And the Chaldeans were withdrawing from Jerusalem since Pharaoh had come up with his army. In verse 11, it reads, Now when the Chaldean army had withdrawn from Jerusalem at the approach of Pharaoh's army, and in verse 12 it says, Jeremiah set out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin to receive his portion there among the people. So we see here that the Chaldeans, they've withdrawn, and Jeremiah takes this opportunity, as it says, to receive his portion there among the people. And that portion is most likely a land, some land that he may have purchased in the past, or he maybe was going to purchase, purchase it now, or divide it with some of his family. So he takes this opportunity, and in verse 13, it says... When he was at the Benjamin gate, a sentry there named Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, seized Jeremiah the prophet, saying, You are deserting to the Chaldeans. And if we step back from the situation, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. This sentry, he's accusing that he's going along with the Chaldeans, withdrawing from Jerusalem. And if you think about what Jeremiah's been telling the people, we looked at those verses that he was saying, Surrender to the Babylonians. It makes good sense that Jeremiah would be doing this. But as we see that certainly he is being falsely accused because he was going to find or to get his portion of land. So in verse 14, it says, And Jeremiah said, It is a lie. 
I am not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Elijah would not listen to him and seized Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan, the secretary, for it had been made a prison. So we see he's accused of abandoning to the Babylonians. Jeremiah, he tells him, it's a lie. It's, you're falsely accusing me. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Elijah, he does not listen to him. So the officials, they responded with anything but mercy. They were enraged. How could he not be loyal to Judah, to King Zedekiah? He was a traitor. These are some of the things that may have been crossing their mind. So, as we see, they beat him, and they imprisoned him. And they put him in Jonathan, the secretary's house. They may have put him there to keep a close watch on him. So even though he was in a house made into a prison, it certainly was no comfy place. It was no luxurious place, a dark, damp, cold cell. So Jeremiah has just went from speaking with men, sent from God to pray, and now he's been thrown in by king, the king's officials into an awful imprisonment. So verse, verse 16, it says, And Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells and remained there many days. So we see here that it says that he remained there for many days. We're not sure how many, but it was for a while. Jeremiah had to endure the musty, uncomfortable living arrangement for something that he had been falsely accused of doing. Innocent and isolated, Jeremiah waited. And then one day, he was sent for by the king. And in verse 17, the king questioned, Is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah replies, There is. You shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. What? Jeremiah said what? He has just come from a miserable situation, and now here's his chance. He could possibly be let free if he gives the king some favorable news from the Lord. He could have easily lied, and the king would have had no clue. But Jeremiah decides to stay faithful to God and his word. He declares the word of God to Zedekiah. And here we get our point number three. We too are to be faithful to God and his word in the midst of hardship. Jeremiah was in a situation that he could have easily got away with, with the king. He could have easily lied. He could have easily unassociated himself with God's word. But he did not lie about what he said, and he was faithful to it. And if we think about this, how Jeremiah responded, how he acted, it's in stark contrast, as we've seen with King Zedekiah. While Zedekiah does not obey God's word and is not faithful to him, Jeremiah is faithful. Think about your own life. Maybe you have been mocked by your friends who are unbelievers. You just do not want to deal with this mocking and making fun of, so you quit bringing up God. You br- quit bringing God up in your faith in conversations. Or do you stand firm in what you believe and continue to speak about Christ and what he has done in your life? Or another example, you're to write an essay in science. Why do you believe evolution is true? What do you write? Do you defend the arguments that you've learned in your learning? Or do you write why it is false and who has created the world? God. And as a last example, you're hanging out with some friends. And your friends, you're doing a favorite hobby with them. They begin to swear, or maybe they start gossiping. 
do you, and you do not participate. And it catches one of your friend's eyes. He says, come on, why don't you swear? Or why aren't you talking about this person? Do you give in or join them? Or do you stay faithful to God and what he has commanded in his word? So along with remaining faithful, we see in verses 18 through 20, it says, Jeremiah also said to King Zedekiah, What wrong have I done to you or your servants or this people that you have put me in prison? Where are your prophets who have prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you and against this land. Now hear, now hear please, O my lord, the king, let my humble plea come before you. And do not send me back to the house of Jonathan, the secretary, lest I die there. So King Zedekiah gave orders, and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And a loaf of bread was given him daily from the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. So here we see that Jeremiah, he takes the opportunity. He's basically saying that he's innocent, and it seems as if from his question, that Zedekiah might have had something to do with this imprisonment, along with the officials. And he also takes a hit at Zedekiah, saying, Where are your false prophets that you look to and listen to, who told you that Babylon would not come? A word about the false prophets. If we look in the book of Jeremiah, in chapters 28 and 29, the false prophets, they were giving Zedekiah many messages, such as, We will have victory over Babylon. They're false they're prophecies were in complete contrast to Jeremiah's. And as we saw in verse 21, Zedekiah listened to Jeremiah's plea and allowed him to be moved to the court of the guard where he was fed bread till it ran out. So how are we to respond to this story? We've looked at some application, uh, some several applications throughout the story to our own lives, but what's the main thing that we can draw from this passage, summing it all up? We are to remain faithful in the midst of hardship to God who is in control. Again, the theme that we can get from this passage is that we are to remain faithful in the midst of hardship to God who is in control. Just as we saw, to review our points, just as we saw, God was in control over the leaders in Jeremiah's day. Even though it seemed as if they were, so too God is in control over leaders and authorities today. We are to remember that He is, is in control even when it seems as if someone else is. Also, as we saw in our second point, that just as God was in control over the chaotic and disastrous situation of the Babylonians taking over Judah, we are to obey him. And remember, no matter how it looks, he is in control of every situation. And lastly, as we just saw, as Jeremiah was faithful to God and his word, we too are to be faithful. So remain faithful to God, who is in control in the midst of hardship. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this passage of, of Jeremiah 37. And I just thank you for Jeremiah's example as we saw that he remained faithful to you, Lord. And as we also saw in the beginning of the story that you are in control, Lord. I pray that as we go throughout our everyday life, as we do our normal uh, daily routines, Lord, as we interact with people, I just pray that as things get tough, as things get hard, Lord, I just pray that we would truly remember that you're in control. I pray that we, that would be a hope to us, that we would rejoice in that, Lord, knowing that you are in control of all things. And I just pray that 
even if things are tough, we would remain faithful to the God who is in control, you, Lord. I just pray for tonight. I pray that you would give us safe trips home. And Lord, I pray that in all that we do, it would be honoring and glorifying to you. And in your name I pray, amen. You are dismissed.